Well, this week I got to, uh, I got to go to a birthday party. And uh, maybe some of you saw some pictures from this birthday party online. Um, I, maybe. I'm not sure if they got posted or not. Some probably did. But it was a birthday party. Probably like, I, I don't know if I've ever been to a, a birthday party like this before. Uh, I was the only boy there. Kind of awkward, but uh, it was good. That means I got to take the pictures because I wasn't one of the prettier faces at the party. But uh, this particular party was for a, a, a gal that many of you know, whose name is Peggy Nigren, who uh, this uh, week turned 93. And uh, here's a picture, maybe, that uh, I have. Yes. That's, that's Peggy with a birthday hat on, just in case, uh, uh, you know, you, you didn't know, but with, wait, go back, I'm sorry, go back. Yeah, with Michelle and with Liz, these two wonderful uh, gals, Liz put this all together. For you who are fairly new to our church family, Peggy uh, has been around for a long time in the life of our church. When, when I first came here lots of years ago, she was one of about three or four widows, older ladies even at that time, that uh, were such a special core part of our church family and had been for a lot of years. And uh, now Peggy doesn't hear very well and isn't able to get around and so doesn't make it out for church on Sundays. But uh, what a joy to go and be with her on this day. Um, Liz really set the whole thing up, and when you see Liz, is Liz here? No, she's not. Oh, there she is. Hi, Liz. I was getting ready to talk about you, but I will anyway. Bless your heart, Liz. This, um, this lady is pretty amazing in her ability to, to connect and care for um, folks in our church, especially older people, and, um, and what a special day we had together having lunch and Michelle always brings joy to any situation as well. Peggy was blown away. She was a surprise. Liz had kept it a surprise that there were others joining uh, her for the the lunch. And we had just an amazing time. Uh, The day before, Kyla knew that I was going, so she had many of our kids just color happy birthday uh, cards for Peggy. And they they colored and wrote little notes on the cards for Peggy. And so this is Peggy and Liz going through each one and reading the little notes that the kids wrote for Peggy. Um, She was was blown away by the expression of care and compassion. But let's be real. It It was the three of us, Michelle and Liz and myself, who were truly blown away by this 93 year old woman. So full of joy and full of life, even though in her aging condition, um, still with a smile on her face and a smile in her heart. We got her talking about her childhood. Uh, Many of the years of her childhood spent spent in Hawaii, grew up in Hawaii. And uh, somebody asked, you know, what were you doing in Hawaii? Well, my dad was working on the harbor. You mean like Pearl Harbor? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He, he worked for a dredging company. They were helping to expand the naval uh, station there at Pearl Harbor. I'm like, okay, that's Pearl Harbor before Pearl Harbor was Pearl Harbor. I mean, that's way back there. 
And uh, I, I had the chance to teach the, the senior ladies Bible study that Loretta has carried on so well, my wife after me, many years ago. And I would just, uh, I would sit there and listen to the stories. It's like, it's like experiencing history as you have conversations with these gals, in particular with Peggy. And it's like no big deal. But I, I was thinking about Peggy this week as I was thinking about the book of Hebrews. Our, our study of the book of Hebrews has been about perseverance. It's been about endurance. It's been about hanging on when the times were hard and when the times were good. And I got the chance to be with a 93-year-old lady this week, and she has been through so much ups and downs and, and has persevered simply as a human being to begin with, but to persevere as a believer over those years as well, and to be a lady who at this age and stage of her life would say, with all her heart, I love Jesus, I'm, I love the Lord, what a wonderful testimony, and what an amazing example for all of us. I just wanted you to see those pictures of Peggy. And uh, for us, even right now, Lord Jesus, be with Peggy. Bless her. Thank you for example, for her life, for her birthday. Strengthen and encourage her heart today. Amen and amen. Isn't that good? That is so good. We, uh, we're talking about, um, again, holding on to Jesus. And whether that's in, in a long period of time or through a particularly difficult period of time, this is what the book of Hebrews has been about. Yeah, persevering, moving forward in faith as we've talked about. And again, for those of you just checking in, we're just a couple of weeks left in this book, but some of you I know are just checking in with it. And, and this book is addressed to early Jewish believers. Maybe been Christians for about 15 years. The Christian faith itself had only been around for just a few years longer than that after the life of Jesus. And this writer, we don't know who he is again, but we know he's a passionate preacher. We know he cares deeply about these people that he's writing to. He, he is using, as we've observed, he's using every tool in his toolbox Every, we just got a new set of knives. Every knife in the drawer. He's using them all. The long ones, the, the short ones, the sh- really sharp, the bread knife. I don't even know what kind of knives these are. But he's using every knife he has in the drawer. Every tool in his toolbox to, 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 to speak and to teach and to exhort and to encourage and to warn and to work and to urge and to convince these readers, original readers, and now readers of Hebrews in every generation. That's us. Working so diligently to convince them and us that Jesus, remember, that Jesus really is greater than anything they have ever imagined greater than anything they've ever encountered in this world, anything that they could ever encounter in this life. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And when the temptation comes, when the pressures around them mount up to say, oh, just throw in the towel. There's too much persecution. The government has it out for you. There's too much pressure. Just throw in the towel. Come back to 
the Jewish traditions that you've known for your whole life. Just come back to that. When, when those temptations and pressures come, they can know, at least this writer's urging is, that they would know that, no, Jesus... Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these things, of all that God has been doing throughout history. All of that Old Testament history has been wonderful, has been helpful, but it's not the end. It's all been pointing towards this new day that God would bring about in the person of Jesus. All of these things have been helpful and wonderful, but now God has done something new in Jesus. He really is the hope for a full and free salvation. There really is, this author would agree with the hymn writer, there really is victory in Jesus and only in Jesus. And so he says over and over, don't give up, don't give in, don't cave into the pressure. You can do this. And so we read last week in chapter 11, as the writer recounted person after person from Old Testament history. And if you weren't here last week, I'm sorry. It was a wonderful Sunday. You should go listen to the, pod, the, the, the podcast. You really should. It was a great, uh, great, great day as we spent time in chapter 11. Old Testament heroes of the faith. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab. Just a few of the examples that he went through. Um, giving his readers uh, people to emulate models and examples to follow people to be inspired by as they thought about their own lives of faith. What a great Sunday as we not only heard about those heroes of the faith, but as we heard from our own heroes of the faith, just a, just a few of them. I realize and I've heard stories even again this week that remind me that, uh, that there are truly heroes of the faith among us. And, uh, and we just heard the, the tipping, just the, the tip of the iceberg last week but again, thanks for those stories. Very meaningful to hear and inspiring to us all as we live lives of faith. So, so you would kind of feel like, and I don't know about you, but as I thought about this whole preaching plan, boy, Hebrews 11 is, can it get any better than Hebrews 11? Can it really get any better than what we experienced last Sunday even? And, and I have something to tell you. Yes, it can. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11, if you, when we, that you'll see in just a moment, is, is actually, it's a summation to a lot of what the Hebrew writer has been saying about faith and faithful living, but in many ways, it's a bridge chapter that gets us on to chapter 12. As powerful as these examples of faith would have been for those original readers, as significant as they have been for each of us, in many ways, chapter 11 was just a warm-up for chapter 12. For now, listen, the encouragement to these readers of Hebrews, to us, is for us to actually turn our attention away from the many excellent models of faith in chapter 11, as good as they were, and now turn our attention to, wait for it, an even better example and model of faith. And who's better in Hebrews? Who's better all the time? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. An even greater model that we have in Jesus. What the author wants to make clear 
is that while these others have been helpful, they have paved the way, they have given us great direction and guidance, it is ultimately Jesus' example that we are to follow. This one who has been shown to be better in every way, again is shown to be better. The best model of faith that we could ever hope for. So here at the beginning now of chapter 12, get ready, because it's as if, seriously, in this, these first four verses of chapter 12, it's as if the writer to the Hebrews just shifts gears, puts his pedal to the metal, and he will not let up until the end of chapter 13, the end of the book. It's, it's, it's go time, as some like to say in the vernacular. It's, it's, it's on, like Donkey Kong. That's, you know what I'm talking about, like the break of dawn, whatever you want to say. So here we are, Hebrews chapter 12. Some of you are like, he's not going to say it, is he? He's not, yeah, I said it. Hebrews 12, 1 to 4. Let's stand up as I read this, can't we? It is on, and so here he goes. Therefore, remember, whenever you see the word therefore, you probably heard a preacher say this to you before, but you got to remember and you got to find out what it's there for. And this therefore is to say, therefore, because of everything that I've just said, everything that I've said about how Jesus is better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than Joshua, he's better than the high priest, he's better, he's better, he's better. This gospel of Jesus is better than any law. He's better, he's better, he's better. These examples of faith that have shown us how to live, they're, they're wonderful. Because of that, we know some d- direction, some general way forward. Because of all that, therefore, this. Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting Him, He endured the cross disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, in the Greek text, verses 1 and 2 are actually one long sentence. And right at the middle of that one long sentence is just this simple phrase. I'll write it out for us in English. Let us run with endurance. Let us run with endurance. Right smack dab in the middle of those first couple of verses, that first long sentence of Hebrews 12 is this phrase. Let us run with endurance. And Instantly, we're thrust into this image that the, the writer is creating for us. This, this, this comparison of the Christian life, the Christian journey, with a long-distance run. And instantly, as well, the runners in the crowd who are reading and hearing this sit up straight, and they listen a little more intently, and they say, See, I knew there was something spiritual about running. I knew it. 
And the, just as instantly, the rest of us who can't stand running slouch down a little bit lower and we say, oh man, another Christian running thing that I have to listen to again. I hate running. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get too many more amens on the I hate running thing, let's dive into this metaphor. Let's dive into this image that the writer is creating for his readers and creating for us here, comparing this life journey, this pilgrimage really of the Christian faith, comparing it to a long distance run. And, and, and I like to just think of it in terms of race day. Today is it's, it's race day, if we were to think of it that way. The, the, the game is on. The, 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 today's the day. Get your game face on, your race face on, and let's go to town. So just like on race day, when the crowd gathers at the starting line and, and along the route and again at the finish line in the stadium. I love the Olympic marathons in particular where they always end in the stadium and they, they leave and then they come back. They go run 26 miles. They come back. to. It's been a little lonely maybe out on the, out on the long road, but as they come back, the stadium is filled with cheering people, with a, a, a great crowd, a mass of people cheering on these runners as they come to finish. And, and no doubt, so in the Christian life, there are those who have, this writer will want us to understand, there are those who have gone before us in this great crowd of witnesses, or other translations that you may be more familiar with say, a great cloud of witnesses. This writer wants us to understand that there are those who have gone before us, and most obviously he's talking about those mentioned in chapter 11, those great heroes of the faith who have paved the way. They've gone before us. And now as we get set on your mark, get set to run our race, and as we enter into that journey, and as we make our way towards the finish line, he wants us to understand that there is a great crowd of people who have gone before us, who have run this race, and who are doing a couple of things at least. Number one, I, I think he would want us to understand that they're cheering us on. That, that, that in a sense, when we run our Christian race, when we live this journey of faith, that we can have this clear sense that, that Rahab is around the throne of God and she's saying, boy, it was tough, but I did it, and so can you. And there's Moses up there as well. And he said, yeah, I left the fleeting pleasures of sin of Egypt to... You know, I thought it would be better to follow Christ, and I did it, and, and you can too. You can do it, and Abraham, and Isaac, and all of these great heroes of the faith gathered around us in this great cloud. That, that word has, no, has new meaning for us now as we think about the cloud computing, right? We really we think about this cloud that's all around us, holding our documents and our pictures. Well, I'm talking about a much better cloud, this cloud that holds witnesses to the faith. This cloud that holds not only great heroes from Scripture, but who's in your cloud, I would ask you. Who are those loved ones or family members or people from our own body of believers or those that you have known who have been faithful believers who have gone on before you? I think this author would want us to understand that they're also present in that cloud cheering us on. But you know what else I think he would want us to know that this cloud of witnesses, this great crowd of people are doing? They're, they're holding us accountable. 
They're saying, not only did I do it and so can you, but I did it and you better too. And this great crowd of witnesses is helping us to remember that we are, we are another piece in this great stream of Christian tradition. And they held up their piece, and now they're looking to us to hold up our piece. It's perhaps like, uh, let's think of a dominant recent sports team. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. The, gro- the groans have begun. I haven't even said it yet, Peter. But uh, let's just think about the I don't know, San Francisco Giants. I don't know. But, but they've won three World Series in the last five years. Do you think there's a little bit of pressure on the up-and-coming Giants? Absolutely. When they, this tradition of winning, this tradition of winning, albeit a short one, but it's five years, people. I mean, a tradition of winning. Now, when new players are coming up through the minor leagues and they get called up to the major league team and they see these players that have won three World Series crowns, do they think they look at them and say, ah, no pressure. No, they look at them and say, wow, they won three World Series. I better not mess around. This place believes in winning. There's a tradition here that I, it is up to me to uphold and upkeep. And I I'm going to sign on to that with all that I have. I think this author wants us to know that there are some winners in this tradition, this faith tradition. And they're looking to us not only with great encouragement and cheering and you can do it and support, but they're also looking to us and saying, this is how we do it around here. This is how we do it around here. And our invitation is to learn and to participate and to be a part of this faith tradition. And do so in a way, there's another piece of this, do so in a way that those who are coming after you will also have this sense that, well, they did it before me, and now, so our kids who are in children's church and our teenagers here and those who haven't even yet been born that would see our lives at some point in their journey would be able to look at us and say, hmm, That's how we do it around here. Ah, that's the tradition that I'm a part of. And so there's great encouragement in this, and there's great responsibility in this. Just like on race day, we have a great crowd gathering all around us. Just like on race day, This author goes on to talk about the runners who would get dressed in their sleekest of clothing. Some of us would say perhaps a bit immodest, streamlined, barely there if you look at some Olympic athletes in particular, but but in such a way, and and if you, well, I, I was going to say that the original Olympic athletes, I'm not going to say this, but they, they really didn't wear anything at all. And so this is the the, the image that the writers is is wanting to help us to think about, not that particular image, but this idea that anything that would get in the way, anything that would slow this runner down, anything that would cause them to just to be uncomfortable or distracted or to, to cut their time by any tenth or hundredth of a second, get rid of it. 
get rid of it. I'm so amazed, especially when I look and watch Olympic sports again, especially in track or swimming, how, how, how so tightly um, competitive these events are. These people will train for you know, their lifetime, but at least four years in preparation for the Olympics. And then they'll either win or lose by the slimmest of margins. Literally a tenth of a second or a hundredth of a second. Just, just so slight. I think this author wants those living the Christian life to understand as well that just as a runner would get rid of anything that might slow them down and keep them from finishing the race victoriously, so in the Christian life, get rid of anything that would slow us down. He breaks it into a couple of categories. He, he talks, first of all, about, about the, uh, um, the things, the, the added weight. What's the word that he uses again? Every weight that slows us down. And, and here it's possible that he's not even talking about sinful weights or sinful issues in our lives, but simply harmful habits, just, just bad attitudes, distracting activities, personality quirks, these things that have just we've become used to and we've gotten used to even saying to people, well, that's just who I am. That's just the way things are for me. And I think this writer wants to say, Really? Are you just going to allow those things to continue to be a part of you, knowing that they're slowing you down at some level? His invitation is to do a thorough 360 examination of ourselves, to look at ourselves from every angle and invite others to do that as well, to invite the Holy Spirit to search us out as well. And what are the things? What are the attitudes? What are the expressions that come out of our mouths? What are our tones of speech even? think about this all the time in relation to my own life. How are the way that I say things not communicating or not helpful when I just think I'm just talking? What are these components to my life that may not necessarily be a sin? They may not even be bad for you or for you, but they're wrong for me. And they're keeping me from becoming all that God would want me to be. Am I going to be willing to Throw that off. Cast that aside. Ask God to help me. Help transform me, Lord. Change that. Make that new in me. I don't want that in my life. I want to be one who's running this race as clean and as fast as I possibly can. But he goes on to say, not only get rid of the weight that that keeps you down, but, but strip off every sin that so easily trips us up. And now he's talking about Sin that we know is sin because it's sin. And it's no doubt to us that it's not only sin for us, but it's sin, sin for me, but it's sin for you. It's sin. And these are the things that we have just rationalized and justified, and we're good at it, and maybe we coat over it, or we just ignore it, and we somehow, or we compare ourselves to others who are worse at sinning than us. There's more for them, and so we make ours okay. And we allow that sin he's talking about, this sin that we just allow to hang out. Just allow it to move in and hang out and take up space in our lives. And he's saying, that's going to entangle your feet every time. It's going to be the chain and the ball that are attached 
to your feet as you try to run. It's going to be the cords that just ensnare you and entangle you and cause you to trip. We wonder, perhaps, some of us, and I've experienced this at stages in my life, we wonder, why are we not moving forward? Why am I not growing more in my faith? Why am I not making more discoveries? Is it possible that there is sin that we've allowed to take up residence in our lives? This writer just says, get rid of it. Leave it behind. Leave it at the foot of the cross. This, this, this better Jesus who died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of that sin, so that it wouldn't have to stay there, remain there. Leave it with him. Let it go. Call sin what it is today and be done with it, he says. Just like on race day, uh, there are things that can slow a runner down. There's habits and practices and sinful behaviors that can slow us down as well. Just like on race day, as we run with endurance, this writer tells us that we are to focus. For the, for the runner, in an endurance run, they need to focus as well. I have not done a lot of endurance running myself. I think I did about six miles one time. That was my tops. But uh, as I look at endurance runners, I just think to myself, well, they're just not thinking about anything. They're just spaced out as they run those 26 miles or whatever it might be. In reality, there's incredible focus that's going on in the lives and in the minds of these runners. They're having to think about all sorts of things, having to think about their training, what, did I, what am I able to do, their pace, how fast am I going, am I going too fast or too slow, if I get off a little bit on what I'm expecting of myself, then I could ruin my whole race. They're thinking about their hydration. Are they getting enough water to drink? Are they getting enough energy or fuel or food even as they're running so that they can maintain their physicality as they make their way through this? They're, they're focusing on other runners in the race as well to know where they're positioned and so they don't trip on somebody or run into somebody or get passed by somebody that they don't want to get passed by. Makes me think of a t-shirt. Where did we see that t-shirt? The girls say, uh, a, a wonderful t-shirt for a girl runner. I don't chase boys, I pass them. <laughs> we got to get that for Paige, huh, Aaron? <laughs> um, right on by. Um, lots of focus. What's, and m- most importantly for the runner, where's the finish line? <laughs> what mile am I on? How far do I have to go? And where is that finish line? I, I can maybe not see it with my own eyes, but I can envision it. I can imagine it. It's out there and it's going to be wonderful. And I'm straining with everything I have to get to that finish line. Well, in just the same way this author says, in the Christian life, we, we have to focus. We have to focus. But now it's not on pace, although that's important. It's not on water or energy, it's really the focus is on one person. <laughs> the focus is on Jesus. We, we have to focus on Jesus. He's the one who this writer goes on in this passage over and over who give, who's, to say that he's the one who gives us the strength we need. He's the one who is the pace setter. He's the one who if we'll focus on Him, will help us determine how fast or how slow we need to go as we make our through, way through this journey. He is the uh, trailblazer, is another word that is used to interpret the words 
that describe Jesus in this passage. He's the one who has run this race already. He knows the course. In fact, He made the course. He created it. And so He's inviting us to follow along behind Him if we'll just keep our focus on Him. He is the one who is helping us at the beginning of the race. He has the starter's gun. He's the one who is giving us water throughout the race, energy, spiritual strength. He's the one who will be there at the end. He is the one who this writer makes explicitly clear, gave completely of himself. He gave completely of himself. And who then, as we focus on him, inspires us to give everything that we have as well. The, um, the, the, the word that he uses there, he says, think about Jesus, or consider Jesus, maybe in other translations. The, the word that he uses, the Greek word, is actually uh, an arithmetic or an accounting phrase. And what he wants us to do is basically load up the scales. And on this scale, think about everything. That, this side of the scale, think about everything that Jesus did. Just consider his suffering. Consider the hostility of the people that were all around him in the, the, the crucifixion and even in his life. Consider all that Jesus endured, as the writer says, for the joy that was set before him. All that Jesus, can sit, put, it up, put it up on that one side of the scale. Now he says, think about on the other side, all that you have endured. And even to these Hebrew readers, these original readers who had experienced some suffering and some persecution, some pressure, even as they threw up everything they could onto that scale, it was very clear that the two were not going to be evened out. That what Jesus had done far outweighs anything that we will ever go through. And so he says, and the same is true for us today. And so he says, consider this, count it up. And when you become weary, when you become tired, when you feel like you can't go on anymore, when you feel like you've come to the end of your rope, and just look at that scale. Or look at, open up the accounting ledger and just see how much more full his sight is. And let that be a strength and an encouragement to us as we continue to run. It, it might shame us to begin with. It might embarrass us as it does me as I think about all that Jesus has done compared to what I've had to go through. It's so little. And yet that motivation, that inspiration that comes from that picture is strong. Just like on race day, as the runners need to maintain their focus, so do we need to maintain our focus on one person. This isn't, we, we know that uh, on race day, just like a runner, uh, especially in a long distance, we know that it won't be an easy run. To, to do a long distance run, again, I'm speaking somewhat in, without first-hand knowledge, but I can imagine from talking to people who have done long-distance runs that this is not a walk on the beach. This is not just a, a little stroll or a little friendly jog to stretch my legs out. This is going to be hard work. And the writer wants it to be very clear to us that we can receive strength from Jesus in the midst of that hard work but he goes on to talk about how this hard work can actually be good for us 
in that it is through that difficult season, through that hard stretch, that God is actually building discipline in us and creating us and shaping us more into the people that he wants us to be. Look at this passage. This is from Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11. Just go ahead and read this with me, would you? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. It's race day, and I would invite us to maybe go to that next one, I think, that says God's discipline is always good for us. Now, it's important just to make a quick clarification here. This, in this particular context... This writer's talking about some hard times that we're going through, that the original readers are going to go through, have gone through, and will go through, and that we as well will go through. And and that these hard times can be a form of God's discipline for us. It's important for us to realize that these hard times are not a couple of things. They are not the hard times that come as a result of our own, can I say it any different, stupid decisions. That's just the consequences of sin. And the Bible says the consequences of sin is death, and we'll experience that. This is also not the discipline or the problems that come about like disease or sickness or natural disasters, these kinds of things that we experience. I don't believe for a second that God is trying to discipline us through hard times or or through sickness or disease or or hurricanes, or anything like that. These things that he's talking about are the, are the persecutions, the pressures that we'll receive from people around us as we seek to live a faithful Christian life. This is the talking about that other people will talk about you behind your back because you're a faithful Christian. Because you've made decisions in your life that are different than the ones that they've made. This is the kind of suffering and the kind of persecution and pressure that he's talking about. And in those hard times, when we have said, God, I'm going to live for you no matter what, and those hard times come, God doesn't always rescue us out of that. Because it's in those moments where he's saying, no, I'm going to to strengthen you. This is discipline. This is good for you. And we're going to use this to make you an even stronger disciple of faith an even stronger um, runner in this Christian journey. There's lots of things that, uh, that, that God can use, and we just want to remain open to them. These are ways that he, His discipline is always good for us. I love it when it said, it doesn't always feel like that. When somebody persecutes you, when something doesn't go your way because of your faith and it hurts, That's not an easy time to realize that, oh, God's disciplining me. This is fun. This is wonderful. It's not going to happen. 
but we can believe that in and through that, God is creating and shaping us for the big picture, for the long run. It, this race will not be an easy one. On race day, we can know, even with all the crowd of witnesses around us, stripped down, nothing holding us back, we can know that it will still be a difficult race. But God's discipline is always at work. And God's discipline is always good for us. Here's the last thought I want to give us. Um, the next passage, Hebrews 12, uh, 12 to 15. So he says this, So take a new grip with your tired hands. And strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet. So that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. And look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Well, just like on race day, when the runners pour out everything that they have, so are we invited to pour out everything that we have. Work at living in peace. Work at living a holy life. I, in my side job, I moonlight as an assistant youth sports coach. I think some of you know that. I, I have a speech that I give to all the teams that I have an opportunity to, to talk to. My son has probably heard it about a hundred times. I say that there's lots of things that you can't control in an athletic competition. You can't control how good the other team is, for one. You can't totally control how talented you are necessarily, but there are always at least two things that you can control, and that's your energy and your effort. When you show up at the game, nobody else can necessarily control those two things other than yourself. How much energy are you going to bring? How much effort are you going to give? And I think at the end of the day, this author wants us to know that as we run this difficult race, we are called to bring all the energy and all the effort that we have to it. To leave it all on the course. I also say to them, and I said just to Thomas's soccer team a couple weeks ago, they had an 8 a.m. soccer game, and I said, what do you guys have to do the rest of today that's more important than this game? And, of course, a couple of them said, well, i got a birthday party, and i got to play some video games later, coach. And I said, be quiet. What do the rest of you have that's more important to do? <laughs> I love it. I love you, sports. But let's ask ourselves the same question. What are we saving our energy for? What are we holding back our effort? Are we storing it up for, do we believe in reincarnation? Like we're going to have another life that we're then going to be able to spend our energy there? I mean, are we like storing it up so when we get to be 93, we'll still have a little bit left maybe? I totally believe in pace. Let's, let's not just, you know, give it all and then, and then have nothing left to give, but let's give everything that we have in the moment that we've have that God's given us. 
And let's remember, in particular, as it deals with these two, work at living in peace and work at living a holy life, that we work always in the Christian life. Some people hear the word work in relation to being a Christian. You think, oh, no, no, it's all by grace, not by works. There's no work. We can't work. No work. Well, this is the Bible, so I'll just affirm that to you. But all of our work, let's remember that all of our work in the Christian life, all of our energy, all of our effort is in response to what God has already done for us. So when he says, work at living in peace, he's not just saying, you know, good luck with that. I hope it works out. Maybe you ought to read some books and maybe take a class on peacefulness. No, he's saying, This God that we worship is the God of peace who has broken down every wall by the offering of His Son Jesus. Because Jesus died for us and we have been been reconciled to God through Jesus' offering. We have been made at peace with God. Because we have peace with God, then we can and must have peace with others. It doesn't make any, it doesn't compute for us to be the grateful recipients of God's grace to to be reconciled to, we were once alienated from God and because of Jesus we have been brought near. We've been reconciled to God. And, And for us to be, to have peace with God made possible and then for us not to be people who would work at peace in our everyday relationships and interactions with people all around us, doesn't compute. So our work is in response. And work at living a holy life, that doesn't, he's not saying grit your teeth, stick your head down, just make it happen, be holy. No, he's saying God's a holy God. God longs to share his nature and his character with you. God longs to take what is of Him, His holiness, and put it into you and into me and make us to be holy people. And so in response to what God has done, this author says, work at putting yourself in places where God's holiness might fill you, might transform you, might change you, where God's nature and God's character might get into you. As the old Nazarenes that said, get under the spout where the glory pours out. Get into the places, work at getting into the places as we study Scripture, as we pray, as we attend worship, as we serve others, as we participate in the mission of God. These are places where the holiness of God is filling us. This is work, my friends. But this is the call that God has put out to us. On race day, we have... Nothing to save our energy for later. We give it all. We can control our energy and our effort. Well, um, last week at the marathon that I had Paige up here last week, for those of you who weren't here last week, Aaron's girlfriend, Pastor Aaron's girlfriend, Paige, won the women's division of the Santa Barbara International Marathon, the select staffing Santa Barbara International Marathon. They said that over and over. They wanted to make sure they got their sponsorship dollars. Um, but I was there, and, and we, after the soccer game, we drove quickly to try to get to Cliff Drive, 
And I think I mentioned this, where she was running up the hill and we were trying to be that great crowd of witnesses. Go Paige, you can do it, come on. And I'm yelling and she's like, nothing. Boom, because she's focused, right? But I think maybe she heard us, I don't know. And then we, she passed us, we got up the hill and we felt like we had really done something. We, we didn't, she did. We got her up the hill and then we got in our car again and we, we drove down to where the finish line was. And uh, we were able to get out and just stand there at the finish line. And we knew she had a big lead, but here she comes. And about, you know, 50 yards before the finish line, it just, it seemed to really hit her. I'm winning this race. And she gave the old arm raise. And I'm like, yeah, Paige. And she crossed the line, the first tape, right through it. And awesome. Winner. And they interviewed her. She was on the camera, and the reporters were asking her questions, and she was really impressive. So I was pumped. But after she passed through, I, I stayed there at the finish line and just watched. We kind of hung around waiting for her to get her awards, and we saw all sorts of other types of runners crossing the finish line. If you've never been to the finish line of a marathon or a half marathon, you should try it sometime because, I mean, there are... Uh, there was some, some military people who were actually running with a big backpack. There were some, like some moms, I think it was Moms in Touch or something like that. No, that's the prayer group. Moms in Motion, that's the running group. Um, they were all running together. There were young people and there were old people that had crossed the line. And at that point, it was as if, I mean, it didn't matter who won. It mattered to Paige, but nobody else really cared. Because all that really mattered to them was what? That they finished. And people were walking around giving high fives. Other people are laying flat on their backs trying to recover. I mean, it's just an amazing scene. But, but down deep within each of them, at some level, there's this sense that I finished. What an accomplishment. It's my prayer for each of us, and I think it's the prayer of the writer of the Hebrews too, that through all this stuff that we might expect, that we will encounter on race day, this journey of faith, as we look to Jesus, our great example, and Jesus' greatest desire for each of us as well, is that we finish. My dad got my sister and me together before I think my sister was leaving for college. It was a momentous time in our life. Some of you have heard me say this, share the story before. We were getting ready to go our different ways. And with the two of us and my mom, my dad simply looked at us and he said, Well, just make it to heaven. We're done with this kind of family arrangement that we've known for the last lots of years. It's never going to be quite the same again. And that's really what I have to tell you. Just, just make it to heaven. Just finish. Just finish. I don't know how many years we have together like this. Some of you might be here just for today. <laughs> but my prayer for each of us is that we would finish. We'd be together for all eternity. Worshiping God with great thanksgiving, as we do even now. Let's stand together.
Thank you, God, for this wonderful invitation to think about our lives as a journey, a race, an endurance run. And so we, we got nothing else pressing, God, after this one. It's just rest with you. So we're going to give it all we got. And there's some people here today who need to get rid of the weight that's slowing them down, the, the sin that is easily uh, entangling them. Just need to get rid of it. God, there's some folks who need to renew a focus, who need to, to get their eyes and their attention off of their careers and off of their possessions and off of what they have or what they don't have or even off of their health or even off of their families. We need to get the priority focus off of all this other stuff and we need to get it on to you, Jesus. You are the author and the perfecter. You're the champion. You're the trailblazer. You're the completer, the finisher of our faith. You were there in the beginning. You're with us now. You'll be there in the end. Jesus, you endured far more than we could ever imagine. No matter what this world could throw at us, you took the very weight of the sin of humanity on your shoulders. It wasn't just blood that you shed. It was blood for the forgiveness of the many. (laughs) And so we can never match up, but we sure can say thank you. And we can be ready to give everything we have, all the energy and effort, in response to all that you've done for us. So God, I'm just praying that you'd you'd, uh, not only help us to finish, but you'd help us to finish well. I pray that we wouldn't just limp into the finish line, but that we would run with strength, with grace, with holiness. God, you say, or we're told about you, God, in this chapter at the very end, that you are a consuming fire. We're to worship you. You are a consuming fire. You are full of holiness. You are consuming all that is sinful, all that is against who you are, and you're making us new. And so we pray that you would consume us even now. Cleanse us and purify us. Refine us, O God, for your glory and for your purposes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being our best example. We give ourselves to you now, and we respond to you now in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.